feel pretty safe in saying that that's the one, the one hymn in all of Christian hymnody that has the word microbe in it. Um, but uh, for all that, it's an excellent, excellent hymn. Well, please uh, take your Bibles again and turn to uh, Luke chapter 8, and we'll, we'll take a run at uh, verses 26 to 39 try and profit from this extraordinary historical account. But let me begin with a a quotation from Dr. J.I. Packer. He has a wonderful book called 18 Words, in which he focuses on 18 different key important words in uh, Christian theology. One of them is the devil. Let me just quote him to you. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's of some benefit. Just gives some ideas to the place of the devil in... Christianity today in, in the West. He says, for, <clears throat> for over a century now, belief in the devil has seemed to be on the way out. The toothy red imp with the tail and the trident has become a secular figure of fun, while Protestant theologians generally have banished the personal devil of the Bible to the lumber room reserved for broken-down myths. No doubt this state of affairs is just what the devil has been working for since it allows him to operate now on the grandest scale without being either detected or opposed. Nor has he wasted his chances. During the past hundred years, he has engineered a worldwide collapse of evangelicalism in all the older Protestant denominations. So let me just say he's talking there about For instance, the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church in Canada is just just rife with liberalism. He's also talking about the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church in Canada is just rife with liberalism. That's the result of the activity of the devil. So as uh, Dr. Packer says, during the past hundred years, he has engineered a worldwide collapse of evangelicalism in all the older Protestant denominations, the present spineless, powerless, evangelical state of these churches, as compared with what they were a century ago, gives heartbreaking proof of the skill and thoroughness with which he has done his job. The Bible is no longer fully believed, the gospel is no longer thoroughly preached, And post-Christian paganism sweeps through the world like wildfire. Not for centuries has Satan won such a victory. Now, it's extraordinary that the doctrine of the demonic should be so cavalierly dismissed and so carelessly neglected by evangelicals, given the fact that Satan is so disturbingly prominent on the pages of the New Testament. There is, in a sense, actually not in a sense, but in reality, just something of an explosion of satanic activity that took place when Jesus came into the world. You read so much about satanic activity in the New Testament and very little about satanic activity in the Old Testament. It was going on, but... um, There seems to be, in the New Testament, an explosion of that kind of activity. Some people speculate that it's the devil, in some perverse way, imitating 
incarnation. And so Jesus' grace is incarnated in Christ, and the devil imitates with some kind of perverse uh, parody of it almost with uh, possession, uh, perhaps. But certainly when we, <clears throat> when we read the New Testament, we read about this increased and escalated activity, um, we find that it is an indication, really, of the opposition of the devil to the rescue mission in which our Lord Jesus is engaged. It's a rescue mission that ultimately is going to issue in the destruction of the devil and of his wicked uh, minions. You see, the devil knows that his time is short. Revelation 12.12 tells us that the devil is well aware of the fact that his end is near and that the Lord Jesus is about to crush him under his heel. Well, here in our passage, and we are this morning in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, in our passage we have an example of the Lord Jesus being confronted with demonic forces. He has already, in the context, as you well know, he has shown his power over disease, shown his power over death, shown his power over sin and over the created order, and now he is going to demonstrate his absolute dominion even over the powers of darkness, over the devil, and over his terrifying minions. I read a commentator talking about this passage, and he, he referred to it as a contest, you know, a contest between Jesus and the powers of darkness. But in truth, it's not a contest at all. It's no contest here. There's no question <clears throat> as to who's in charge. <clears throat> There's no question as to who is the most powerful one. There's no question as to who's going to win. Immediately that Jesus is there, the demons are on their knees. They've possessed this man, and he is immediately on his knees. Jesus is clearly and overwhelmingly and unquestionably supreme. Well, we want to look then at uh, what we call the story of the Gadarene demoniac, Luke 8, 26 to 39. And the first thing that I want to speak to you about is the state of the man. The state of the man. And Jesus arrives on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Gentile territory. We know that because there are pigs there, and Jews would not permit that. We also know from studies of the region, and uh, immediately the Lord Jesus is met by a demon-possessed man. You can read about that, of course, in verses 26 to 30. Let me just say a few words about the devil, and about demons, just give you the, the quickest of sketches about what the Bible has to say about um, demonic forces and the devil. The Bible tells us, 1 Peter 5, 8, that the, the devil is our adversary. Satan is our adversary. That word devil and that word adversary, they 
they point to the fact that Satan's nature is to think and to speak and to act in constant opposition to God and in constant opposition to God's people. He is the adversary of God. He's not a servant of God. Well, he is in some ways because God's sovereign, but he places himself in an adversarial position against God and against the people of God. Satan's ambition with regard to you, with regard to people, with regard to those who are in the image of God, people like us, his ambition is to deface that image, to destroy that image, and to thwart God's will for you, for God's will for your life and for your destiny. Satan is an angel. He's one of those sons of God. But he is a fallen angel. 2 Peter 2 says he's one of those angels that sinned. He is one who has been created perfectly, but he's fallen into sin. And uh, he opposes God in everything that he is and in everything that he does. He is the commander of the spiritual forces of the air. He can appear to be an angel of light. He pretends to be a force for good, but in truth, he is opposed to God, and his rule is properly described in the Scriptures as the power of darkness. This darkness is intellectual and moral and spiritual. The devil is all about darkness and is nothing to do with light. The Bible tells us that the devil is a serpent. You read about that in Genesis 3, Revelation 20. The Bible describes him as a dragon. These are images that frighten us. These are images that trouble us. These are images that suggest that there is malevolence there. There is danger there. He is a dragon. The Bible says he's a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Don't go out into the streets. Don't go out into the field. There's a raging lion there. Well, that's the image that Peter uses. And he says the devil is like that and he wants to destroy you. The Bible says that he is full of cunning, he is full of hatred, he is ferocious. He is not calm or docile, he is ferocious. He is a rabid dog in a spiritual sense. The Bible calls him the tempter. The Bible says he is the evil one. The Bible says he's a liar. You can't expect truth from him. The Bible says he's a murderer. He wants to murder you. And not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. Now, the Bible says that this is what the devil is like. That this is who he is. And the Bible makes sure that we know that he is... J.I. Packer says, unimaginably evil. <clears throat> I 
Dr. Packer writes, though in fallen man God's image is spoiled at every point so that nothing man does is ever entirely right and as it should be, none of us is purely evil. And we simply cannot imagine a being who is purely evil. We can never, therefore, form a really adequate idea of what Satan is like. Not even Milton could imagine Satan as entirely lacking in nobility, nor is C.S. Lewis's screw tape entirely without good humor. But Satan clearly means us to believe, sorry, sorry, Scripture clearly means us to believe in a Satan and a host of satanic minions who are of unimaginable badness. More cruel, more malicious, more proud, more scornful, more perverted, more destructive, more disgusting, more filthy, more despicable than anything our minds can conceive. You just have no idea how evil this being is, and he is a real being, and he is present and active in the world, and he's opposing the church, and he's opposing you, and he's opposing every child of God in the world and seeking to destroy them because such is his venom and hatred towards God. Well, 2 Timothy says that people are in the snare of that devil after having been captured by him to do his will. That's the state of unbelievers. They are in the snare of this devil about whom I've been speaking and you are captive to him to do his will. The Bible says he's the one who led the race into ruination and destruction. He's the one who tempted and tortured Job. He's the one who's always, and I mean always, tempting Christians like us. He can't do it himself all the time everywhere because he's not omnipotent and he's not omnipresent but he uses his minions, his other fallen angels, under his authority. And his, his purpose is to destroy your life and to make a mockery of your testimony. And then you look long and hard at this man. And the devil and his demons have just shattered his life. You look at him, he's He's naked. He's out there in the fields. He's out there amongst the tombs, and he's naked. And I've listened to a couple of sermons this week, and people kind of joked about it. You know, oh, he's, <laughs> doesn't, uh, he doesn't have a dress code. <laughs> Nothing funny about it at all. It's full of shame, and it's full of sadness. And he's, he's homeless, this man. He has no place to lay his head, and he... He sleeps every night where dead people sleep, and he's isolated. Matthew tells us that there is a companion, there's another one like him, but people are terrified of them, and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. You don't go by there, you warn your children, don't go over there. And everybody, adults, grown men, strong men, we don't go that way. We go this way because we need to avoid them. Because they're dangerous. That's, that's what this demonic force did in the life of this man. And he was strong. There was supernatural strength. 
Don't imagine that miracles don't happen, that God does. But also don't imagine that demonic forces are not able to do extraordinary things. You go and you read the account of Moses in Egypt. They could do amazing things. They could do miracles. They have great power. And so this man had supernatural strength. They, They bound him, perhaps for his own benefit, certainly for the benefit of others. They bound him, and they bound him with ropes, and they bound him with chains, and he was able to break them. To break them, not get out of them the way Houdini did, but to break them with physical, supernatural strength. This was a terrifying individual. But I want to say to you that this, what you read about here, which was absolutely true, this is an historical account, this is just a hint. And you read about this sorrow, this shattered life, it is a hint. It's the faintest of whispers as to what the devil wants for you in terms of your destiny. Let me show you where the devil wants to take you. Let me show you where he wants you to end up. Look at Revelation 20. Revelation 20, and beginning at verse 9, and then verse 12. Revelation 20 and verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, are thrown into the lake of fire where there is torment forever and where the devil is. And if you're not a Christian, the devil is going to take you into the lake of fire where he is. That's what he wants. So you look at this story, you find it disturbing, you say, oh my goodness. And then you realize that's just a hint of what the devil wants and of what he will get for those who are unbelievers. This is so, so sobering. Let me give you some lessons from this. The first is that you have an enemy of your soul. Christian and non-Christian, you have an enemy of your soul. You need to be aware that the devil has done his part to throw humanity into ruination and destruction. He is the enemy of people like us. And he wants to destroy people like us. He wants to destroy you. If you're not a Christian, he wants to take you to hell. If you are a Christian, 
He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to see your family in tatters. He wants to see your testimony for Christ a laughing stock. So be aware of this. You have an enemy. Secondly, you have instructions from your commander. You have an enemy of your soul, and you have instructions from your commander. That is from Christ. C.S. Lewis writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We don't want that. We want to take them seriously because the Bible's clear about them, and we want to follow our instructions. So what instructions do we have from our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, as to how do we deal with these spiritual realities and these wicked forces? Uh, I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm just going to give you two quick things. The first is don't try and discern everything that the demonic world is up to. Don't try and discern everything that the demonic world is up to. So something happens in your life, and you say, I think the devil's attacking me. I think he's marshaled his demon forces, and I think they're attacking me in this. What should I do? Oh, now he's attacking in this area. And, you know, you spend a good deal of time trying to figure out what the devil's doing. And I'm saying to you, it's a waste of time. Like, it's not revealed to you. We know what's going on here, and you know why? It's because it's revealed. We're told what's going on. It's explained to us what is happening. But the Bible doesn't command us and doesn't expect us uh, to figure out what the devil's doing and to try and understand all of his wiles and ways and his stratagems in the world. No, that's, that's beyond us. So that's the first thing. Don't try and understand and discern what the demonic world is up to. The second thing is, grow in the grace of God and in holiness and in understanding and in prayer. We have instructions that are very clear as to how we are to live, and as we live we will be able to resist whoever and whatever is attacking us. We don't have to figure them out. We just have to do what we're told. So, Richard Baxter said, for instance, when we're idle, we tempt the devil to tempt. So what are we supposed to do? Well, be busy. Be busy in the Lord's work. As our motto text says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. So don't worry about what the devil's working at. You work at what God's given you to do. Be always abounding work. Don't be idle, just sitting there thinking, I wonder what the devil's up to. Well, one of the things is they make you lazy and just sit there and wonder what the devil's up to. So um, be careful about that. No theology. If you go and you read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, you read about the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of faith and so on and so forth, you'll realize that all that's involving theology understanding about God and about salvation and about grace and what Christ accomplished on the cross and all the good theology that you're so well familiar with, be increasingly familiar with. The more familiar you are with that, the more that is taken into your mind and into your heart. Well, that's how you resist the devil. 
Resist him and he will flee from you. How do I resist? Well, I, I focus my attention on Christ and who I am in Christ. So no theology. And then pray. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Pray often. For prayer is a shield for the soul, it's a sacrifice to God, and it is a scourge to the devil. So be a man, be a woman of prayer. You remember at the end of Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, he says, use the weapon of all prayer. So the best thing you can do in terms of satanic activity is to pray. All right, all right, now I know what to do. I don't have to figure them all out. I just have to do what the Bible tells me. Pursue God, hunger for God, learn about Christ, learn about his theology, spend time with him, be at the throne, be in the word, be amongst the people of God. That's what you need to do. So you have... Um, you have an enemy of your soul, and you have instructions from your commander. And thirdly, in terms of implications here, you have, you have knowledge to live up to. You have knowledge to live up to. Spurgeon said that atheism is a strange thing. He says, even the devil never fell into that vice. Because the devil has good theology. You know, the devil is... Actually, the devil has better theology than some professing Christians. The, better, the, the devil has better theology than that United Church minister in Toronto who is an atheist. <laughs> Wait a minute. A Christian minister, atheist. She is wrong on several accounts. But uh, Spurgeon says uh, the devil never fell into that vice because they believe. They have faith. They, they believe certain things. Not saving faith, to be sure. But the devils believe, James says, and they tremble. They believe in who Jesus is. They accept his theology. They accept that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And so when Protestants deny the deity of Christ, at least the devil gets that right. How shameful is that for professing Protestants? They believe in a future judgment, do the devils. They know it's coming. Don't cast us into the abyss, that place where judgment is poured out. They know it's coming, and they accept the reality of it. There's even kind of a, a perverse sense that they believe in prayer. You know, they beg Jesus. They ask, what is prayer? It's talking to Jesus and is asking him for things. And they, they ask him, they beg him, don't cast us into the abyss. They ask him... Put us into the pig. Let us go into the pigs. And so they, they talk to him. Liberal, liberal Protestants want to say prayer. Well, you know, prayer is just sort of meditation. No, it's not. So the point here is, see, because I said you have truth, you have knowledge to live up to. The thing to understand here is you can know a lot of theology and still go straight to hell. You can sit in a Christian church for decades, and I come to bury you, and I come and stand by your grave, and I put dust on your, your coffin, 
and you've gone straight to hell because you know everything about this, but you've never believed. That's the tragic reality. That's the frightening truth. It's just so sobering. You You can understand theology. You can define theology. You can defend theology. You can propagate theology, but you don't really believe because you haven't turned from your sin and you haven't trusted Christ. And so the theology that you know becomes a source of greater judgment. Because you remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty four. 24? He said, I'll tell you this, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom. It's going to be, well, you know, in hell there are, there are levels of unbearable torment. And the torment for Sodom will be less than for you if you don't come to Christ. That's the sobering reality. That's the state of this man. When you read this, the state of this man should remind you there's much worse to come. I've gone to, I've been at funerals and I've, I've listened to Christians say about non-Christians whom we're bearing. You know, so there's, we know that the person I'm, we're bearing is not a believer. And I've heard Christians say, well, you know, at least the suffering's over, and that cancer was awful. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, think, of, give your head a shake. Like, how, how dare you say that? I mean, how dare you say, well, at least the suffering is over. At least he's, I've heard this too, at least he's in a better place. You know, your jaw drops. And I, I mean, I understand. I'm not trying to be mean here. I understand why people say that. Because at funerals, you know, we don't know what to say, and then we just say it. You know, and it's, just be careful. And, and you, you're just trying to help in some way. I get that. But let's not tell lies. Probably evangelicals tell more lies at funerals than anywhere else. No, no. This, this is a sobering, sobering, terrifying reality. Well, let's move on. I'm not going to finish this sermon. Let's on, move on to the transformation of the sinner. Transformation of the sinner. Oh. So if you look at verses 31 to 34, what a transformation. Now, a, a Roman legion had up to 6,000 men. And so when the demon is asked, when the man is asked, it's probably the demon that's talking through the man. And um, the demon is asked, who are you? What's your name? My name is Legion. And so probably all that's being said is that there are many demons here. It doesn't have to be 6,000, but there are many demons. So this man is demon-possessed. Christians can't be demon-possessed. If you're a Christian... You don't have to worry about that. Maybe you're worried, oh, I don't want to be possessed by by the devil. Well, don't worry. You won't be. You can't be. Uh, You are a Christian. You're the dwelling place of God. Who lives in you? Well, the Spirit of God lives in you. These comedies made you his abode. Uh, You're his temple. You read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You're the temple of God. You're the holy temple of God. You are God's possession. 
So you can be possessed by the devil because you are possessed by God. God possesses you. You're his possession. You belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. So the devil doesn't want to be around the Lord Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus while he's here? I'm his temple. Demons don't want to be near Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And so, um, so no, nothing to worry about. You can't be possessed. You, you'll be attacked. That's part and parcel of being a Christian. You're in a war. You can't be a soldier in a war and not expect to be attacked. You'll be, you'll be attacked. No question about that. Remember that. But you won't be possessed. You can't be possessed. But now you look at this man. He was possessed. But what a transformation. He meets Christ. What a change. And so we read about him in verse 34. People came. They came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, never to return, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. So now you have a man. He has a testimony to give. This man now has a testimony to give. It's a testimony of an extraordinary conversion, an extraordinary and an amazing transformation. There's complete reversal here. Uh, He is now clothed. He's running around the countryside naked. How, oh, how shameful. How tragic. And perhaps there were days when he looked back upon that. And he just shuddered. But you see, that's changed. Now he's clothed. And now he is seated. He's in a good place, seated at the feet of Jesus. He was was roaming around. You never knew where he was going to be. He'd be sleeping at the tombs. Now he's here. And now he's seated. And now he's associating with people. He's here and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus in the company of the saints. How extraordinary is that? He was driven into tragic and awful isolation. And now he is in society. Now he's amongst people. He's clothed and he is seated and he is associating, and he has a sound mind. He is clothed and in his right mind. He had been, in a sense, insane. And honestly, you walk into insane asylums, you walk into mental institutions, and you will meet demon-possessed people. That's not how they're Defined, that's not how they're diagnosed. Tragically, they are possessed, many of them. I shouldn't say many, I don't know how many, but that's a reality in places where people who are trying to help just have no categories for them. This man has changed now, you see. He has his mind transformed. He is sound of mind. And, and he's comfortable. This is not a comfortable world. 
And the way of the transgressor, the Bible says, is hard. And he's comfortable now. There he is. He's calm. He's quiet. He's seated. He's in the presence of Jesus. He's associating with people. He's happy. J.C. Ryle said, Never is a man in his right mind till he is converted, or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed until he has put on the Lord Jesus. He's got a testimony to give. And he has a story to tell. This man, he has a story to tell. And if he was living today, and if this had happened to him today, well, he would be uh, on the talk show circuit. All the evangelical talk shows and podcasts, they would have him. They would contact him, and they would ask him to tell his story, and he would have emails in his inbox from all the publishers they're offering Got a book deal for you. It's going to knock your socks off. He says, no, no, I just got them back on. It's okay. And so he's, he's, got, a, he's got a story to tell. You see, all Christians have a story to tell. You say, oh, I wish I could have. I mean, that'd be a story. I'd sit down around the campfire and say, let me tell you. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you. If I, if I could have that kind of testimony, that would be fantastic. But you see, you have a testimony as well if you're a Christian, not as exotic as his, not as dramatic as this. But you have a story to tell. Maybe your story is of God keeping you from sin. That's a great story. Maybe your story is about preservation, not possession. That's a great story. Maybe your story is that I grew up in a Christian I was never in the far country. I never went to Tibet looking for truth on the top of a mountain. I never went to an ashram in India with some delusional, psychotic individual who called himself a, a Maharishi. No, no, I, never, I was never into that. I, I grew up in a Christian home. And God kept me from that. And God kept me from the darkness. And He kept me from the shame. Oh, thank God. If that's you, oh my goodness, how thankful you should be. And that's what we want for our children. That's what we want for, for children here. That'd be wonderful. That's a, that's a great story to tell. And you know, sometimes, sometimes non-Christians understand that. Sometimes they see that, you know. Sometimes they, they testify to that. There's a man by the name of Matthew Paris who... He is a, he's not a Christian, and he writes about what he, he saw in Africa. He says, oh, Africa needs Christians. He doesn't believe in God, he says. He says, but I believe that Africa needs God. And why is that? Well, he says, let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what I saw about Christians. He says, I, I, we had friends, he says, who were missionaries. And as a child, I stayed with them. I, I stayed... Uh, in a traditional rural African village. And, and this is what I saw. The Christians were always different. I don't believe, I mean, he doesn't believe this stuff. But he says, the Christians were always different. Far from having been cowed and confined by its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. 
There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others. They seemed to be missing that kind of thing in traditional African life. These Christians, he says, they stood tall. When I read this passage here about this demoniac who's now sitting and seated and associating and in his right mind, thought of this story. It's a non-Christian. He's saying, what a transformation I see in the lives of those who come to Christ. The Christ I don't believe in, to be sure. But what an impact. They stood tall. And we know this. We've seen this has happened to some of you. That's wonderful. So you see, the transformation of a sinner. Let me give you one lesson and then we're done. The lesson is this, that, you know, we... It's wonderful to see this transformation in this account. It's just fabulous to see that. But that's not, that's not all that is here. That's not all we read here. That's not all we're told about. What we're told is that the people from the village and the owners of the pigs and the people in the countryside, they come, they've been told, they've, been, they've heard the news, and so now they, they come to see for themselves. And what happened to our pigs? Well, our pigs went over the cliff. They're gone. You've lost. You've lost money. And how do they respond? Well, they're afraid. What are they afraid of? We're not told. But they're afraid of something, and they're troubled by this person. And who knows, maybe... Maybe they're afraid of losing more money. Maybe they're afraid of what Jesus will do to their lives. I don't know what it is, but you know what the astonishing thing is? And this is what's very, very clear, is they say, please go away. We don't know what's going on in their brains. We don't know what's motivating them. We don't know all those those details. But we know this. They say, please go away. That's astounding. The lesson is, just be warned about that. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Let me remind you of the most awful sight in the world. The most awful sight in the world. You know what it is? It's the back of Jesus. Because that's what they saw. They said, go away. And he did. And verse 37 says, he got into the boat and he returned. He went back to where he had come from and he left them. That's the most awful sight in the world, to see Jesus walking away from you. And how many times are you going to say no to him before he finally walks away from you? Let me tell you about the most awful words in the world. The most awful words in the world. We read in Matthew 7, at the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Go away from me. Now you never want to hear that. That's the most awful thing any human can ever hear. So I wonder what happened to these people of the Gadarenes. I wonder what happened to them. I wonder if they ever came to their senses. I wonder if the light ever dawned. I wonder if they ever ran after the Lord and said, I was wrong, and I want you to save me. 
wonder what happened to them. I know, we know what happened to the, we call him the demoniac. He's not a demoniac anymore. We know what happened to him. He wanted to follow Jesus. He told everybody what Jesus did. And if you die tonight, you go to heaven, you can talk to him. You can find out what happened. Because he's okay. But I don't know what happened to them. And I don't know what's going to happen to you if you're not a Christian. I don't know. I know what could happen. You could be saved. But I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm saying to you, read this and be warned. Don't be like these people. There's life, there's forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. Come to him today. And you'll be saved just like this. God can bring about this kind of extraordinary transformation in your life where you are seated at the feet of Jesus, content and happy for time and eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for your goodness, how we thank you for your Son, and how we pray that by your grace... You will today transform people all over the world and bring them from the insanity of their sin and satanic oppression and control from the dangers of judgment that falls because of sin and bring them into a holy and happy relationship with the Savior of the world. Grant this, we pray. And for those of us who are already safe, we thank you and praise you In Jesus' name, amen.